jokes. I know Michelle told one last week, which was pretty funny, but I'm a nurse, so I really can try and tell one. Upon examination of the patient, the doctor asked, have you been to another doctor before you came to me? And the patient said, no, I went to my pharmacist. <laughs> he said, well, that was stupid. What kind of idiotic advice did he give you? He says, you know, you're right. He was stupid. He told me to come see you. <laughs> <laughs> so some people aren't big on second opinions. Anyway. Today we're doing chapter two. And um, last week in chapter one, Paul was put in a, a rather awkward position of defending himself as a man of integrity and a true apostle. The Corinthians were allowing these false teachers to come in, and the false teachers were actually making up some trumped-up accusations against Paul, because Paul had decided to change his plans in coming to visit them. But the truth of it is, they weren't really concerned about Paul's itinerary, his travel plans. They were just trying to make an excuse to accuse him of being fickle, not being able to make up his mind, uh, that he was self-absorbed. At the end of chapter 1, in verses 23 and 24, Paul tells them he's not coming, but he doesn't say why. So there is a bit of an awkward chapter break between chapters 1 and 2, because in chapter 2, he does explain it. If we back up to verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1, We'll see where he says this. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but our work is with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. Paul tells them right out and out he's not coming. But he doesn't say what he's sparing them from. He goes on to that in this week's chapter. Paul writes three things here in chapter 2 that we're studying this week. In verses 1 through 4, the apostle proceeds to give the reasons why he's not coming to Corinth. In verses 5 through 11, he writes about church discipline and gives some instructions on forgiveness and restoration. Then Paul closes the chapter in verses 12 through 17 by thanking God for the ministry of spreading the, whole, the Holy Spirit's message of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason Paul did not come to Corinth, verses 1 through 4, but I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote you. In case when I come, I should have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love that I especially have for you. Now this is a rather wordy passage, but you'll notice sorrow is mentioned like five times in four verses. You see, Paul had brought these Corinthians the gospel in the first place. He had spent about a year and a half teaching them, so he was really their spiritual father, and they were his spiritual children. And he loved them in spite of all their issues, and oh, believe me, they had some issues. Uh, listening to false teachers was just the tip of the iceberg. Paul had written his first letter to the Corinthians, and he was actually crying as he wrote it. Sorrow would probably be an understatement for how he felt. He went on to list 
all the things they were doing wrong. He had slammed them with 16 chapters <coughs> chuck full of correction. He was scolding them, though, not as a lord over slaves, but as a father over his sons or as a, a shepherd over his flock. This church had some serious, serious sin issues, and Paul was just putting it out there. A summary list of just some of the issues that Paul had to deal with, they had broken off into clicky factions. Uh, they were arrogant and prideful. The women were not in submission. People were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Believers were suing one another and taking one another to court. And the church services were very chaotic uh, and disorderly because they were not using their spiritual gifts properly. The married men were turning to celibacy thinking that that was going to make them more spiritual. And they were listening to Greek philosophy which denies the resurrection from the dead. So they had that doctrine all wrong. Then topped it off with allowing a sexual relationship to go on between a man of the church and his stepmother who I take it is not a member of the church but they not only allowed it but they actually were very proud of how tolerant and liberal they were about this. So they didn't want to judge them because we don't want to judge anybody. Paul was extremely concerned for their spiritual welfare and genuinely, genuinely grieved over their sin. And what pastor of any church would not be? So he really did give it to them in his first letter. But he cried over it. And Paul told them to straighten up, but he always did it out of love. His motivation was always love. It was never to be in charge. The false teachers just added to Paul's grief. These men were telling the church that Paul couldn't be trusted. He can't even make up his mind. He doesn't even know what he's doing. If he cared about you, he'd be here. All he does is sit around and write weighty letters about all the things you're doing wrong. And who made him the boss? Well, Jesus Christ made him the boss. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, he was doing what any good pastor would do when sin is found in the church. He told them the truth. If you, if you love someone, you tell them the truth. You don't tell them what's gonna make them feel good. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. He wasn't worried about hurting their feelings. He was worried about them continuing in their sin and not repenting. Uh, I heard a quote from a sermon that said, Yes, the truth hurts, but it never harms. Hurting is not the same as harming. For instance, does surgery hurt? Last time I had one, it did. Yes, it does. It, but it's not meant to harm you. That's not the intention, at least. It's meant to help you. And that's what the truth is intended to do. And we should be thankful to God if we are blessed enough to have a pastor or a leader like Paul who watches over our souls. For well, he does have to give an account to God for this. And we should also be quick to respond in order that our pastors can have joy and not sorrow, as Paul was talking about. But the truth about sin doesn't end in the corporate body of Christ, the church. It goes well beyond that into our personal lives. We know that no one sins in a vacuum. If we see a fellow believer in unrepentant sin, we need to go to that person and speak the truth in love. That's love. People who tell you everything is okay when it clearly is not, does not have your best interest in mind. And Paul in Galatians even said, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? That was a rhetorical question because the answer is an obvious no. Only a friend can tell you the truth. That's why Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
So now we see Paul already brokenhearted after writing this first letter out of anguish and grief over their sin. And now here in the second letter, he, face, he fears facing them again if they haven't repented. He didn't want to repeat performance of the, of the first letter and the first visit if they had not repented. And he would be sorry, but so would they, because then he would have to use his apostolic authority over them. And he didn't want to have to do that. He didn't want to have to lord himself over them. It would have been a, a real sad state of affairs if this had to happen all over again. So instead, Paul wanted to rejoice with them over the fact that they had repented and are now walking in obedience. He wanted to give them more time to repent. And in verses 5 through 11, we hear about more sorrow as Paul addresses this particular situation regarding the believer who was carrying on the immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, at this point, the man had repented. But like a lot of churches today, the Corinthian congregation was a church of extremes. Earlier, when Paul's integrity was attacked, they sat back and did nothing. And now, when pushed by Paul to deal with this immoral situation, they punished the man with a vengeance. They refused to forgive him and to restore him, as they should have done. Paul appeals to them in verses 5 through 11 about this. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to you all, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end, and also, I wrote that I might put you to the test with your obedient in all things. For whoever you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything. I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And here's a key phrase. In order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This is another long, wordy passage. But it seems as though the church had taken the bull by the horns, and at least... Paul says the majority did. Apparently there were some in the church that didn't think that this needed to be taken care of. But in the end, Paul's earlier rebuke in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5 regarding this particular man and his immoral lifestyle was heeded, and they had practiced church discipline and had put him out of the fellowship for a time. Sadly, few church, churches today in our postmodern world neither understand nor practice church discipline as described in the Bible mainly because we live in a very consumer-driven world. Uh, Seeker-sensitive churches are, are thriving right now. Confronting a church member about sin is not a real popular idea. After all, chances are they might leave, go down to the church down the block, and they'll be loved for who they really are. This is easy to do in our day where there's a church on every block, but back then there wasn't a church on every block. So church discipline had a much more serious outcome. The nearest church might be 200 miles away or on the next continent. But whether in Paul's time or now, this should be a biblical standard in every church in order to, that the purity of the church of Christ be protected. Jesus laid out the four-step process for church discipline in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Step one, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. And if he listens, you've won your brother. Step two, if he doesn't listen, 
take one or two more people with you that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. Step three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, the elders, whoever may be the leaders. Step four, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be at, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That sounds strange to us, but in another words, if he's acting like an unbeliever, he'll be treated like an unbeliever. No fellowship within the church community, no prayer meetings, no Bible study, no communion table, no ministry. And another good passage is found in 2 Thessalonians 3.14. Paul writes, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame, but do not regard him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother. The whole context of this is done in love. The whole idea behind putting a sinning brother or sister out of the fellowship is to shame them and drive them back into repentance. Once true repentance takes place, you're to welcome them back into the assembly. The Corinthians did the right thing in breaking, breaking off the fellowship in the first place, but then they went overboard in failing to restore him once he had repented. Paul was instructing the Corinthians to do three main things. One, end the discipline. Enough is enough. The punishment by the majority is sufficient. Number two, forgive him. Paul said, whoever you forgive, I forgive. Comfort and encourage him. And not just say, oh, it's good to have you back. Money, clothes, anything that person may need. They want to feel like they're a part of the assembly again. They don't want to feel like they're outside the fellowship of Christ. And number three, lastly, reaffirm your love for him. The Greek word for reaffirm actually means to publicly ratify like a legal contract. If you put somebody out of the church or the congregation publicly, you need to bring them back in publicly so the church knows. Paul mentions the danger of being taken advantage of by Satan if they do not forgive. And this is just how Satan works, isn't it? He sees unforgiveness as that great foothold into either your own life, the church, even at work, among co-workers. Just a brief glance back at my own life, I see how Satan used my weakness and inability to forgive to gain a foothold, so we have to maintain a, a good memory in this area. The phrase unaware or ignorant of Satan's schemes is a wordplay um, in the Greek. It literally means we are not unmindful of his mind. A prominent theologian once said one of the Christian's best defenses against Satan's ploys is a prior awareness of his purposes and methods. And I really don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to say that unforgiveness held long enough in your heart uh, could be a cause of some of the stress and emotional turmoil that many of us suffer and could be remedied by a good, healthy dose of forgiveness. However, the only ones that have any ability to forgive in the first place are those who have already been forgiven through Christ. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone can even reach a point to where they can forgive anyone anyway. Rarely are we ever in the mood to forgive. Uh, if we waited for that to happen, it would never happen. And we all struggle with it. I struggle with it. One day I want to forgive, the next minute I want to do something else. <laughs> anyway. Someone once made the comment to the great John Wesley, love John Wesley, well, I never forgive. And Wesley replied, well then, sir, I hope you never sin. <laughs> Unforgiveness disrupts your intimate fellowship with God. Your prayers will not be heard. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We also run the risk of God disciplining us for it if we hold it long enough. 
And even God's forgiveness doesn't exist simply because he's a loving God. It's true that he is a loving God, but he's holy and just. And because he's holy and just, every sin has to be paid for. And sin was paid for in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to those who trust him, for those who trust him as their sin bearer. This is the only way to God through his son, the death of his son. Now in verses 12 and 13, we see a very restless Paul. Paul writes, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking leave, my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Paul was extremely restless at this point because of, of his decision not to visit Corinth. He had sent Titus ahead and just to check out their spiritual condition and report back to Paul. The plan was that they were going to meet up in Troas, but Troas is a seaport city that's across the Aegean Sea from Corinth, and Macedonia is between Troas and Corinth. So it was a perfect seaport city for Paul to preach the gospel. He, he had a completely open opportunity God had given him, and so he was working in Troas. And I think Paul's strategy in mentioning this wasn't to give the Corinthians his travel itinerary. It was just to say that the reason I'm here is I'm preaching the gospel, not because I don't feel like coming to see you. Because that's what the false teachers were accusing him of. It's really the gospel that determines where Paul goes, and it's the Holy Spirit that directs him. Titus had not shown up to Troas as quickly as Paul wanted. So Paul couldn't take it anymore. He was very anxious. So he packs his stuff up and heads to Macedonia, hoping to, uh, to meet up with Titus sooner. This way he could get the report, because he couldn't concentrate. That's how much he loved them. He couldn't concentrate in Troas on this ministry. Then mysteriously in this chapter, we don't hear any more about Titus or his report about the Corinthians until chapter 7. In what is known by many as the Great Digression, Paul launches into a speech on the joys of being a minister of the Gospel of Christ, which continues for the next four chapters. He begins his digression in the closing verses of 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the aroma of death to death, to the other, an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not peddling, we are not like many who are peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul suddenly shifts from anxiety over Titus and anxiety over Corinth to thanking God for the wonderful privilege of spreading the gospel. I found this passage interesting, Paul using the phrase, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. Although it is true, God does lead us in triumph in Christ, many Greek scholars do not render the text this way. Instead of leads us in triumph in Christ, the literal translation would actually be to triumph over us in Christ. In other words, we're not the ones triumphing, we're the ones triumphed over. This word triumph is found in one other passage which kind of helps make sense. Colossians 2.15. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, Christ has triumphed over us. We have become the willing captives and bond slaves of Christ and we're paraded as trophies for his glory. This picture of triumphing over was a cultural statement that would have been very familiar to Paul in his day, not so much in ours. It's a picture of 
a Roman procession, a victorious Roman general returning from battle. He's got his armies with him, and he's got a triumphal procession coming on all through the streets of Rome, showing off his captives that he got from the other countries as trophies. And the spectators lying in the streets are watching this, and they're exalting the Roman general. So in this case, Jesus Christ is the great general who triumphed over us, his captives. Paul, on the road to Damascus, what happened to him? He got knocked off his horse, and the Lord made him his captive. And many times, Paul refers in his letters to being the bond slave of Christ. We who believe have been taken captive by Christ. We're his bond slaves. We're his trophies to be seen by the world. But in the end, it's Christ who's exalted in this procession. After Paul talks about the triumphant Christ, he praises the work of the ministry, sharing the gospel of salvation to a lost and dying world. He uses the sense of smell to describe the different responses people have to the gospel, good and bad. This is also a re reference to the triumphal procession because they used to swing, they had incense they would give off in the parade, the horses, they had flowers, the horses would crush the petals below their hooves and you could smell this beautiful smell. Now we don't see that, but Paul was reminiscing back to what this was like. And those who received the gospel, to them the fragrance is sweet because it, it means eternal life, but to those who reject it, it's like the smell of rotting flesh. And it is, it's, it's repulsive because it's that of death. And it's a weighty responsibility to carry the gospel to the world because it's literally a matter of life and death and should never be taken lightly. And this is the ministry Paul's talking about here. And every believer is a minister of the gospel. We are part of that ministry. The world's focus is so focused in on the body, uh, how you look on the outside, Yet it was the soul that Jesus said was most important. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Mark 8, 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the ministry that Paul's describing and continues to describe for the next four chapters. Then he asks a question in the end, who is adequate for these things? And the answer is none of us. Unless we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, it, it's not gonna happen. It's not gonna have any real influence on people. How can you perform a ministry that's of a spiritual nature without the Holy Spirit? The answer is you can't. Paul's admitting that he himself, who was a true apostle, went to the third heaven, was uh, totally taught by Christ himself that his dependency to get the job done was on God. This, of course, doesn't negate human responsibility for studying the word. We still have to be responsible studying the word so that we can give a clear presentation of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but handles accurately the word of truth. Anyone who has trusted in Christ for salvation is entrusted with the ministry of sharing the gospel wherever God has placed you, whether it be home, work, church, neighborhood, you seize every opportunity while we're still in this country able to do it. In the very last verse of this chapter, Paul again defends his ministry by saying, we don't peddle the word of God, as some do. The false teachers of that day imitated many of the Greek philosophers who would get paid to give these really neat speeches. Now, anyone with a TV might have an idea that that's still going on. 
because the televangelist will look you in the eye and then speak something out of the Bible and then ask for $100. So that's not Paul. Paul would have none of it. Paul was a man of integrity. Paul's ministry was about spreading the sweet aroma of the gospel. If you were here today and you've never trusted Christ, I urge you not to put it off for one day. This, this week was a, a bad week at work where I work. I had two nurses my age who both lost their husbands suddenly with no prior warning and one riding a bike, one driving his truck. And they thought they had all the time in the world. They had just gotten back from vacation and they thought they had all the time in the world. We don't have all the time in the world. Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes the judgment. You do not want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ without Christ being there with you and calling out your name. So while there's still time, please come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so, so much for your word. And sometimes it seems complicated and long, but Lord, your Holy Spirit just reveals so much to us. But the big thing is, we're exalting Christ in all of it, Lord. He's the one to be exalted. And we ask, Lord, that you work in the hearts of everyone here in this room, Lord, to glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.